Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoit Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing good, Kevin. How are you? Doing very well. Today on the podcast, we are going to give you a brief recap of our roadshow. We'll talk about changes in house leadership. We'll get into the school calendar and just a little, little tiny sprinkle of Kerwin. We have, to, we have to do it, right? Okay, so Michael, last Friday, we went down to Wicomico County, to Salisbury, to the National Folk Festival. I think if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. We have a lot of uh, special guests on there, a lot of great content. But you and I were both really impressed with what was going on down there in general. I mean, it's it was a great scene, right? This is a big national event that that Salisbury threw threw in to host for a three year stretch. And I mean, you know, one of the comments I had is I grew up in a small town, and, and we would have the t- each town has its own little festival one weekend in the summertime, and you get you know you get five thousand people to come through your town. And they they buy their elephant ears and corn on the cob and they ride the tilt a whirl and right. that's that's a big event for a small town. Right. This was a whole different dimension. So right. we, you know we saw the infrastructure as it was going up on Friday for a three day event and I mean they're preparing for block after block after block being shut down. They're the big turnout for this thing. Yeah, we sort of got a, a tour around with some <laughs> of our friends and, and it's just building after building that's going up and things that are being redone. And then you, you mix in Salisbury University into Salisbury City. And I mean, it's just, it's it's fantastic what's going on down there. But they had a massive turnout over the weekend, even with a hurricane lurking off the coast. I mean, when we went down Friday, it was sort of gloomy and cloudy. Still a great turnout. Over the weekend, things really ramped up. Yeah, no, no surprise. So, I mean, hats off to to all the organizers of the event and all the local leaders who sort of paved the way and made that happen. And, I mean, for us, for the podcast, this was our first time sort of being let out of captivity. Yeah, we got out of the basement <laughs> at Mako, and we sort of were roaming around. And um, I got to tell you, I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed getting out amongst the people, our friends, local elected officials. I don't know. I mean, is this, what do you I, think? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're cut out to be the Harlem Globetrotters and be, you know, to big road show going everywhere. I don't think this is a prairie home companion where, you know, we're going to fill up every middle school auditorium in Wisconsin with no. our show. No, I don't think that's our, our scene, but honestly, you know, that worked out pretty well. So I don't know who knows what's next. I had fun. I liked it. We'll have to see what happens next. But Michael, while we were down there on Friday evening, news broke about some changes in House leadership and House committee assignments. And we'll we'll get into those. But one big one has to do with Delegate Cherie Sample Hughes. And that was a big deal for the folks down on the shore. As that news broke, we were sort of seeing some high fives. The folks were really happy that that she will be in leadership. Right. So and not just in leadership, but as the Speaker pro tem in the House of Delegates. So I mean, we'll, we'll sort of unpack these announcements. And that's that's big news around Annapolis, uh, the House of Delegates going through a transition with with the law 
loss of Speaker Bush. You know, we've we've talked about and, and everybody sort of digested uh, Speaker Jones and her role and her vision and her getting that 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 spot was its own story. She came down to the Mako Summer Conference and had a really well attended and really productive conversation with one of our our chapter organizations. A standing room only, right? So th- that was, I mean, so everybody wants to get a sense of you know the new boss, what's she going to be like, and what she interested in, and so forth. And we've heard her talk about policy, but one of the things that a political leader has to do is sort of staff up. And in particular, Speaker Jones vacated three different leadership posts uh, on, you know, in in becoming speaker herself, she had previously been a subcommittee chair in the appropriations committee, capital budget, also capital budget, which is a really big deal unto itself, Absolutely, as well as being the speaker pro tem, sort of the person who holds the gavel when the speaker is indisposed or tied up or whatever. And we saw her serve in that role late last session, you know, when the late speaker Bush was out with, with health issues, she, she did an admirable job and, and that was sort of the talk I, around right. town. It played no small role in, you know, when when politics got complicated and the caucuses were fracturing to some degree, you know, the idea of, well, everybody was pretty comfortable with her at the front of the room holding the gavel and steering us through the last couple of weeks of session. So, you know, maybe maybe that fits. Um, and no surprise there. So, n- nonetheless, Cherie Sample Hughes, a relatively new delegate from the Lower Shore, she's actually a former member of the Wicomico County. Council. She has a local government background, but you know we're in Wicomico County as this happens, right. and that's a, still a big part of her legislative district. So, you know, there were a lot of you know hometown girl does good sort of vibes going on as as the buzz was spreading. Absolutely, and so we'll, we'll get into to some of these. But Michael, I guess it, it's big news in Annapolis. But is this really huge news? I mean, Speaker Jones, as you mentioned, she she was the consensus candidate when all was said and done. So we weren't really expecting heads to roll, right? I mean, this was not going to be this massive change and everybody was going to get thrown out of their committee assignments or their their chairs. It wasn't going to happen like that. Yeah. If you, if, if you were pacing the floor, waiting for an announcement that suddenly, you know, all the committee chairs have been dis- disposed and we have new people leading everything and it's a bunch of people you never heard of are going to run the circus now. That's not that's not what anybody was expecting here. So, so I mean, the idea of you've got leadership jobs to fill as a result of Speaker Jones taking that role, that makes sense. You got one other wave that was necessary. Just a couple of weeks ago, we got an announcement that that two leadership level delegates from the Baltimore County delegation are joining the leadership of the county government. Right. So they're going to be part of the, the, the administration in Baltimore County government. That leaves two vacancies in leadership in the House of Delegates as well. So Speaker needs to respond to those. So, I mean, what you end up with is a reasonably long list of changes, but a lot of them are just ripple effect that someone moves up to become the chair of the capital budget subcommittee because someone needs to do that. Adrian Jones vacates that role. And then that person might leave something else. And so someone moves into her role and then someone moves into that person's role. So you end up with like five people on the list of changes. It's not like this list is let's get rid of 30 people and replace them with 30 brand new people. Right. A lot of it just had to happen because of other changes, like you said. So we'll get into a few of these. So, Michael, uh, the the first big one, majority leader. So that's going to be Eric Lutke, Montgomery County. He replaces Kathleen Dumais, 
who will now become the House Chairwoman of the Joint Legislative Ethics Committee, as well as Vice Chairwoman of the Economic Matters Committee. That's obviously a pretty pristine spot. So, so I mean, they're entrusting a lot with Delegate Dumais, and that's not a surprise. Right, right. So she's, she's got a track record and is very capable and articulate. So um, the Ethics Committee is one you want in firm hands, and that makes plenty of sense. Uh, the the idea of getting her in leadership in economic matters, there's an awful lot of important and weighty issues that go through that committee. And I mean, that that's not where her background is, but I don't think anybody's going to doubt that that she'll be a positive influence and, and she'll work hard there too. And that's part of what economic matters needs. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. she's, she's just a, a proven leader. So putting someone in that spot like her, I think makes a lot of sense. And so we didn't see any changes to standing committee chairs, right, right, Michael? But we did see some notable changes to subcommittee leadership, especially in the Appropriations Committee. Right. So as I mean, as, as you mentioned, Appropriations was where Speaker Jones comes from, and she vacates two different leadership roles in that committee. Mm-hmm. So so now you end up, you know, there's you know, tier after tier of moves within the Appropriations Committee. And if you do anything in fiscal and budgeting matters, you have to know the appropriate Appropriations Committee. They're the ones who do the agency budgets brick by brick. They're the ones who build the entire spending plan for each year and mm-hmm. so forth. It's a very demanding committee to sit as a member of. A lot of work. It's a lot of work. They have, they have, you know, if you look at the hearing schedule for most committees, it's through the afternoon. Appropriations has their own list of bills, but then they have budget hearings on their own separate page of extra hearings. Right. And members of Appropriations know they're the ones carrying around those big three-inch binders and that sort of stuff, while other members, you know, might be done at 315 sometimes. Right. So we mentioned that Speaker Jones chaired the the Capital Budget Subcommittee. That now will be chaired, Michael, by Delegates Juana Gaines, and the vice chair there will be Mark Chang. So, so Delegate Gaines, uh, no stranger to those of us in local government and people who have been fighting on issues of transportation, where she's been a leader. Uh, she's a former mayor and has has roots in local government. Mm-hmm. So and we say this all the time, and it kind of gets old. We love when people in the legislature can remember what it was like serving in local government at the county role, uh, in municipal role, or on a school board. Even that those connections to serving a district or knowing your county or the kind of phone calls that bubble up to local leaders. That's a that's a very anchoring experience for people who move on and go into the state legislature and think differently because they know the rubber meets the road back home. Yeah, and you can't teach it, right? I think if you've been there and, and you've been through it, it's a lot easier to understand some of these issues. Whereas if you haven't been and folks are trying to explain to you, here's why this is so important. If you're able to actually put yourself back in that chair, put those shoes back on and remember what it was like. I think it's a lot easier for you to understand and empathize with local governments, especially when it comes to issues like road funding and health yeah. departments, important stuff like that. Right. So, so, so make no mistake, uh, Delegate Gaines is in the center of a very powerful sphere in the House leadership structure as vice chair of appropriations and as chair of the capital budget subcommittee. That's a big deal, dual role for her. And that's a, a big deal for her jurisdiction. Okay. So one of those ripple effects, we mentioned that Delegate Gaines moves to chair of the capital budget. She used to chair uh, transportation and environment subcommittee and appropriations. That will now be chaired by Delegate Mark Corman, and the, the vice chair will be Delegate Carol Krim. 
So Delegate Corman, as the as the new chair, uh, already has a really elevated profile. He has been a big leader on supporting the transit system in the greater Washington area mm-hmm. and making sure Maryland was one of the players to keep that system from sort of you know falling apart financially. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've got their own issues and in, in management and maintenance and so forth. And you know, there's there's a lot of things going on there. But he but, really stepped up and took that issue on. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so so not a big surprise to see him claim a high-profile leadership role on transportation issues. Uh, He's a big transit guy, but I don't think he's looked unfairly at other components of the transportation system. So I don't don't think it's an either-or proposition for him. Uh, You know, the big fight has been transit, but there's, you know, there's more to be tended to in that big-picture committee. So, you know, that the jurisdiction of that subcommittee is a big deal. Absolutely. And so Delegate Corman used to, to be the chairman of the Oversight Committee of Personnel. He will now be replaced by Delegate Pat Young from Baltimore County. Also, Michael, Delegate Young has had a high profile here in Annapolis. Really smart guy. I think this is a a good spot for him. And uh, he was previously the vice chair here, so he's very familiar with the subcommittee. Right. So no surprise there. And and appropriations is the centerpiece for an awful lot of personnel policies, including a lot of things that affect local government. So whether whether it's the state with a mandate that counties do one thing or another or counties and municipalities do one thing or another. This is the place where that stuff is vested. The, the members on this committee start to get deeply familiar with that subject matter, both because they're seeing it on the state perspective, but also they have to think about the policy statewide. Right. And then a few more changes in appropriations. Delegate Ben Barnes, he's going to be elevated from vice chair to chairman of the Education and Economic Development Subcommittee. Delegate Hedelman will be the vice chairwoman there. And then Delegate Michael Jackson, Michael, will become vice chairman of the Public Safety Subcommittee. So as you mentioned, there is so much going on in appropriations. You just look at all these subcommittees. I think it really makes it clear how many areas they're dealing with just in that one committee. Right. So uh, no surprise, appropriations is very busy, very influential. That's a big deal in the House. Um, I don't think there's anything that jumps off the page here where you say, oh, my gosh, I never had any idea this could happen. These are all logical follow through sort of moves. So no big surprises here. But the, the roster of people that Folks like, you know, like you'll be in appropriations an awful lot and, and your colleagues on the MAKO policy team will right. be will be in there an awful lot. Uh, you know, knowing, knowing the terrain and who are going to be the players, that's where you want to be in September, October, leading up to a next session. Okay, Michael. So you mentioned earlier we had two House leaders leave uh, from Baltimore County and go to Baltimore County government. One of those was Delegate Lafferty. He left the Environment and Transportation Committee. We also saw some changes there, some significant changes. What's going on in ENT? It's 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 a few moving parts on their subcommittee structure, and this is maybe not as obvious unless you work in these areas. The relationship on transportation policy between appropriations, who is nominally funding and budgeting, mm-hmm. and then the Environment and Transportation Committee that that does motor vehicle stuff, but also sort of road funding policy and so forth. This has been a, a tricky interplay for us. Uh, for instance, we've had legislation the last several years dealing with our favorite topic, highway user revenues. Right. What share of the gas tax ought to be sent back to local governments to maintain our roads and bridges? And that's that's been a big push and pull for years and years. 
that subject matter has been located in the Environment and Transportation Committee as a policy committee, even though that's a big fiscal effect. Right. That's that's policy, and that's where ENT has a role. So some people who are big into transportation policy see either of those two committees as a place to get stuff done, mm-hmm. and that's part of some of the movement we've seen on the committee committee roster here. Um, Delegate. Dana Stein, who's the subcommittee chair, uh, Baltimore County delegate, who's the sub, or excuse me, he's the uh, the vice chair of ENT, right. um, also now moves in as subcommittee chair on their subcommittee on environment, and that's a, that'll put him in another of those doubly influential roles. Right. Vice chair of the committee is sometimes a thought leader on the committee in voting sessions, but also managing your own subcommittee means he'll have a finger, his fingers on a lot of environmental policies. He's going to well. be busy, definitely. And Delegate Jim Gilchrist uh, replaces Stein as chairman of the Natural Resources Subcommittee, so another change there. And Michael. We're also seeing uh, a member from Appropriations move over to the Environment and Transportation Committee, Delegate Brooke Learman. Also, she's very, very much into transportation issues. And as you said, these committees are sort of interchangeable. One deals with more policy, one deals with more funding, but she's going to now move to the Environment and Transportation Committee. Right. So, so, and, and she'll have a leadership role on that committee. Um, they have a subcommittee that, that, that oversees land use and ethics, something that local governments and land use issues are very near and dear to local governments. So she's got a familiarity with housing policy, with zoning, and its effects on transportation. So I think she had an interest there. This is probably a good fit, mm-hmm. um, but it gives her an opportunity to sort of have some domain as a subcommittee chair there. Another big news, as you said earlier, we love when we have folks who understand local government who have been there before. We have two members of the Environment and Transportation Committee now coming into the committee, Delegate Jen Terraza and Delegate Carl Anderton, who, again, local government veterans, they are now going to be sitting on that committee. Right. So to the extent that there's a debate to be had, we think there is about highway user revenue and the way we fund local transportation. Um, Having Delegate Terrassa, a former member of the Howard County Council for a number of years, and she sat on the MAKO Legislative Committee and years ago was helping us pick our top priority, which each year was highway user revenue being restored and so forth. So, I mean, her as a veteran of of those issues can't hurt. Uh, We had Delegate Anderton on last week when we were down in his neck of the woods. Um, he's a true believer that the local share needs to get back on track for highway user revenue. So, I mean, those are two voices. We're going to welcome having them join ENT for sure. Okay, Michael, a lot of other changes here. We're going to put them on the blog. Anything else you want to mention about changes in House leadership before we take a break? I just think, like, this is a set the tone moment. But there's no, I mean, there's no reverb here, right? There's no reaction around town where people are saying, wow, you know, what was Speaker Jones thinking doing this? Where, where did this nonsense come from? And like that, that's easy to have happen. Sure. Do you announce, you announce, you know, 18 different people in new roles and there's bound to be someone around nibbling at this and saying, well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure this makes sense. Why her and not him? I mean, that kind of thing just happens in a large organization organization with lots of decisions. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything like that around town. This all makes sense. Um, I think there's a certain continuity here. So I don't know. The speaker has wide backing anyway, but this isn't going to hurt on that. Yeah. Front. You haven't heard anyone around town. And also remember, she's managing 141 delegates. I also haven't heard anything from any of them being upset with new assignments yeah. or being upset that you know someone didn't get an assignment. So it seems like there's a lot of harmony there. 
Very good thing for Speaker Jones. As you said, she was a consensus leader. We didn't expect massive changes, and we're certainly not seeing any kind of visceral reaction from folks around town or within the House of Delegates. Righto. All right, we'll go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk about the school calendar, and we will talk about our second favorite subject behind highway user revenue, the Kerwin Commission. All that and more after the break. Back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into an issue that we discussed at length during the last legislative session, the school calendar. As you remember, as our listeners remember, as anyone who was around town remembers, there was a lot of debate back and forth between the governor's office and the General Assembly on this topic. This has been going on for a while. This is one of those – it's one of the half dozen topics that even non-political people pay attention to. And you know, we know we know the teeming millions out there who listen to the Conduit Street podcast. You're in the weeds and you've got your sideways sheets of paper and you're nerds like us. Okay, that's fine. But even people who don't follow politics have found this interesting in part because it's so visible, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, this is a generational thing, right? <laughs> but it's like the Labor Day start yes. philosophically is, well, in my day, you know, in my day, yes. the school started in September and we liked it. And, and, and that's how know, it should I mean, be. Right, exactly. So, I mean, but there, you know, th- there's, there's a visible element of this where what are the streets like the week before Labor Day and when, you know, when can you schedule family vacations and things like that? So, Understandably, for I don't know. I mean, this has been bouncing around for the last three or four years now, but looks like this you know may be behind us for the time being, um, and with a little bit of a twist. Yeah. So as a reminder, that the governor issued an executive order that would mandate school calendars start after Labor Day and end before June fifteenth. Um, the General Assembly overturned that executive order. Hogan then vetoed that bill and then the General Assembly overrode the veto. And at the time, Michael, the governor was pretty insistent that, you know what, that's okay. We're going to get the signatures necessary to get this on the 2020 ballot, which is 3% of Maryland voters. And we're going to make it a referendum question. So, I mean, so there's a little bit to unpack there in the step by step. Mm -hmm. So if we do this as a TikTok, um, we know for a while there was a a, a special task force or a commission in panel to look at this issue. So that goes back. Yeah. so, Yeah. So some years ago, there was a group convened to look at this issue. We know that the comptroller has been very visible and vocal on this issue. Mm-hmm. And there's always been this economic argument that says if you give everybody clarity that the schools aren't going to start until after Labor Day, then you can free up that extra week or so and turn that into family vacation time. A lot of those people are going to spend their family vacation in the state of Maryland at places like Ocean City. Yeah, Ocean City has always been down yeah. here. Testifying so they're right, they're all in for right, this, right? Big deal for them. So, so I mean, that's how the battle lines kind of gotten drawn. Some of this is an economic argument as well as a cultural one. 
Governor gets on board, does an executive order. It's not entirely clear that this is something the governor has complete province to do, but it's really up to the legislature. Do you want to put in a bill and pass it to override it? Right. You this polls really well. So, you know, if you just ask Marylanders, do you want your schools to start after Labor Day, you get 70 some percent will say, yes, that sounds good. Sure, sure. Um, once you get into the details, which we did a couple of years ago, not this last school year, but I think the school year before, it got really tricky because Labor Day was kind of late and you ended up crunching down spring break. You had some places had to abridge the number of religious observances that they could have, have days off for, teacher work days get compromised and so forth. So, And you better hope you don't have a lot of school day or right, snow or days. Snow right? days, right. right yeah. So, so the weather becomes a bigger factor too, you know. Anyway, so when, when the legislature at first decided to just let this go. The governor had his way for a while, but in the 19th session, the legislature decided, okay, enough's enough. This has been too difficult. We're hearing from our school boards and our systems and our teachers. They want to go back to the old, old, the recent system, not old system. Right. And, and so really, I mean, before before the governor took action, it was up to the, the school boards. Right. right. And that is what the General Assembly's bill does. It now puts it back in the hands of the school boards. It doesn't say right. you have to have end to school. do this day. Right. 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 They can do what they want to do. Local control. And it's funny right. because we heard everyone talking about local control during this debate on the floor. And I'm just hoping they remember local control when right. it comes to issues that Mako really cares about right. in the future. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see. That'll, we'll see. That'll, that'll get tested, I'm sure. Yes. But so, so during this session, the legislature did see fit, pass a bill to, to make this a local decision again and basically take it out of the hands of the governor's executive order. Legislature can do that. Mm-hmm. And but like, like you said, the governor foreshadowed, okay, this bill is going to get petitioned. You know, a certain number, you get a certain number of people sign a petition to take any bill other than one that was required to make the budget work. Right. And the people can have the final say. You can put it on the ballot. So I think you and I and most observers left Annapolis in April basically thinking, okay, this issue is going to go on the ballot and the smart money probably is, it'll get overturned. People will vote for the post Labor Day start. Right. So for whatever reason, the last piece of that story hasn't come together. And that's why we're bringing this up now, right. not just because it's an interesting issue, but basically the window has passed mm-hmm. for the petition process to be submitted. It's not going to be on the ballot. So I guess, at least for now, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. And maybe there was, you know, the General Assembly in their legislation did, you know, they said, okay, if you are going to put this on the ballot, this is going to be the language of exactly how this referendum question is going to read. Maybe that right. played a role in this. But yeah, it uh, kind of unceremoniously, this deadline passed and there will be nothing on the ballot regarding school start date. So, so that means for next fall, for the school year that starts in August or September of 2020, it will be up to the local school boards to decide when they need to start their school calendar so they can finish on time in June, leave whatever cushion they need to account for snow days, but build in 
the, the, the springtime break and other observances and so forth that they needed to make the calendar work. So this will be a local decision, and uh, we'll see if that's the end of the story. And remember, they still can start after Labor Day if they want to. Right. So right. so we, we haven't seen, you know, clear indications as to what's going to happen. So, you know, F, you know FYI, this is the, – the terrain is going to be different, not the school year we just started, but a year from now things might look different. Okay. So that issue seems to be put to bed for – now, at least, Michael. All right, let's sprinkle in a little bit of Kerwin here to, to close this episode out. We, we have help to. ourselves, right? They did have a meeting last week, right? This is the the funding formula committee of the Kerwin Commission. They met again last week, Michael. Talk about what happened last week. Any big news coming out coming out of that that work group? We've been waiting for the big news. Right. Did, did we get it? <laughs> Not exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, su- surprise, surprise. For right. the for about the thirteenth time, Conduit Street put our neck out and said, "We think this is the meeting." Um, he- here's where we are. First of all, the schedule to wrap up this special work group, which is supposed to come up with all the formulas and all some of the heavy lifting, is supposed to be done by the end of the month of September. Some of the most technical <laughs> items, some of the yeah. most important items, and, that, like, that and make politically this work. controversial yes. and difficult yes. items, end up being the distributional questions of, okay, now we have these flowery paragraphs of prose. Now, once you implement that and you say, okay, these dollars are going to follow these kids in this fashion, somebody should run the numbers and say, okay, this is what it means for Allegheny County. And this is what it means for Anne Arundel County and on down the alphabet. Exactly. Um, We still aren't there. So um, the, the the group met on September 5th. That was last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are planning to meet again on September 19th for another, actually for them, short meeting, just a two and a half meeting each of those. Yeah, I don't want to lose was- track of that either because that was a significant change that actually – it came out when we were on a county leadership call talking about the the funding work group and what was going on. What happened during that call? That was really bizarre. We had, I, I don't know, 30-some people from almost every jurisdiction across Maryland on a phone call with MAKO trying to sort out you know, what we thought was going to happen at the September 5th meeting. And this is on the afternoon of the 4th. Right, the day before. Right, so the day before. And somebody on the call said, hey, by the way, I'm on the website for the commission, and it looks like they just posted a new schedule. So lo and behold, they did. We ran something on the Conduit Street blog right away, but they had adjusted the schedule to the the, the meeting on Thursday the 5th was abridged to be I think 10 to 12.30 instead of 10 to 4. And then the meeting on the 19th, same. So that'll be another morning meeting done at lunchtime, allowing the members to have some lunch. So, Michael, I mean, I guess if if you're listening to us and you just heard us say this is some of the the most (laughs) difficult work that that, that has to be done to to make this all come together, and then you hear us say, and by the way, you know, they've cut the meeting time, (laughs) what what is going on? Well, uh, I, I think what this shapes up as is after the after the meeting on the 19th, the half-day meeting on the 19th, the following week is basically circled on the calendar for tie up all the loose ends. That That is still scheduled as a full-day meeting. So that sounds like the big decision meeting for the group. It, it seems to me that on the 19th, that's just next Thursday, they have to show at least the beginnings of, okay, you know, here are some policy options. And if you did this bundle of choices, right. then here's what it would look like. At, at the very least, I, I would think they would have to show 
the state funding obligation for years one through 10. And then, uh, so, I mean, this is where we're kind of stuck. Right. So <laughs> I think that's pretty, pretty much a safe bet because of what happened at the last meeting. The, the kind of the staff of this working group sort of got the information they needed to start running those numbers, right? Which, which oddly enough, was literally just the first page of questions on that big document that we talked about and that we spent a lot of time with with our county stakeholders. Right. They have this big working document called, you know, building the foundation formula. And it was sort of the questions you all need to answer so that the staff and the consultants can run the numbers and show you what would happen. Right. But they really spent a window of time, an hour, hour and a half or so on one question, which was basically, you've already made some base assumptions on what things need to be part of the educational program. And that's going to be this ramp up for teachers and their training, some scaling down on the, on the hours each teacher spends in the class, some extra resources for uh, schools that have a high concentration of poverty, right. um, extra resources for special education students and programs, some some extra counseling and guidance for career and tech, tech education. So you, you bundle all that sort of stuff together and they basically are saying, okay, let's just turn this stuff into numbers because what we need is a foundation amount, dollars per student that applies to every kid, not your special add-on populations, but dollars per student for every kid. That, that sort of is the engine that drives the entire school funding plan. And even just doing that, which was – honestly, as, as, I, as I listened to it – it's mostly a mechanical exercise. You've already said you wanted to do A, B, C, D, E, F. And so they amount to this many dollars. And when you tally it up, here it is in today's money. Right. And here it is. And and the phased in by the end of the 10-year stretch. By 2030. Right. So, I mean, as a practical matter, that doesn't sound like a controversial decision. But that took them an hour and a half to, to basically, not even to vote, to basically just stop talking. And I think the staff has said, fine, we've got what we needed. Now we have a foundation number. Right. So so it seems like, okay, at least we have the foundation number now. But as you said, I mean, these were sort of decisions that had already been made about we're going to do A, B, C, D, and E. We're going to put this into this formula. Right. Okay. So so I guess we've made a little bit of progress toward getting those those giant spreadsheets here, Michael. They didn't make any votes, right? They're going to come back next week and they're going to, hopefully the staff will have that foundation amount. They're able to plug that in and maybe we'll start to see now at least what the state share is. Right. I, I guess. Okay. I know we I, don't I want to predict anything. No, but I mean, because, right. You know, that, that's not been very good for us, no, right? No. But, but as, as a practical matter, here we are. It's September. So, right. And remember, this group has to get their recommendations back to the Kerwin Commission so that the Kerwin Commission can can wrap this up and then the General Assembly can take that and turn it into a bill. Right. So if if they're supposed to be done after one and a half more meetings, then we look at it took them an hour and a half basically just to dot the I's on stuff they had already decided that was going to go into the foundation formula. And all through that, there were members raising their hands saying, now what exactly, by approving this, are we locked in? Is this for real? I'm not taking an official vote. And and the staff and and the chair, Britt Kerwin, kept saying, no, this is just, we need to give them direction on what numbers to run. So so in, in theory, we should see the beginnings of this come together on the 19th. And then 
they should have enough in front of them to make their final decisions on the 26th. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like. We can't know at this point, but I'm, I'm just hopeful that the material stakeholders like us get on the 19th is enough that we can actually digest the policy options. And to be clear, Michael, so changing the foundation amount alone, that doesn't have any effect on county funding obligations. Well, it doesn't get there yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, the that's to come. Right. So, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the the 45 second version of how school funding works in Maryland mm-hmm. is we have a model for what we think funding per student ought to look like. Right. And that's this foundation dollar amount. We then do a special multiplier for classes of students we know are tougher to teach and tougher to reach. Need more resources. So so we know there's some extra funding for those classes of students. But that's basically the model it comes up with. Your school system with that number of students needs X dollars. Right. And the state share of that is calculated by using that local wealth per student formula that we've talked about a good deal. And this commission has basically decided we're not going to address. Right. Um, they look at that local wealth, and as an inverse function of wealth, the state comes up with, here's our contribution toward that calculated goal. Then the local share, the state says, you have to keep maintaining your level of funding per student. Maintenance of effort. Maintenance of effort with an adjustment if your overall effort on a special scale is lower than average across the state. So a number of jurisdictions get maintenance of effort plus some sprinkle on top. Mm-hmm. Other places, it's just keep doing what you're doing because you're already at or above the average effort level. But that's our system right now for the local side. This commission has spent a trifling amount of time, you know, hearing, seeing basically a couple of bullet points on the ways you could revise that system, but nothing substantive at all. So just changing the foundation amount basically says, okay, you know, if the state share in your county is 60% of that foundation amount, and we just bumped it from $7,250 a student to a little over $9,000 a student, that means the state share is going to go up. And that's just arithmetic. Absolutely. But the local share has a bunch of policy behind it. Once you come up with, is the local share assumed it's just going to happen? Is it going to be a condition of getting those new state dollars? Or is it going to be the state stepping in and obliging the counties to do some new thing? Like basically, you know, you throw out maintenance of effort, you replace it with something, or you add a new layer onto maintenance of effort. We just don't know what that looks like. And you got a week and a half. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, exactly. Well, a meeting and a half to right. try and sort this stuff out. Okay. So uh, a lot to come there, Michael. And there was a public hearing scheduled. I'm assuming that since we, we shortened the next two meetings, that's not going to happen now, but but maybe that's going to happen in the future. Yeah, so if if you had marked your evening of September 19th as a time for public comment on this stuff, uh, go ahead and unmark your free up to go see a movie or something that evening. Uh, there's not going to be public comment for this tier. So with this funding formula work group, they're not going to be taking public comments. It sounds as though they anticipate doing Doing that later in the fall with the full Kerwin Commission after they've received the technical formula recommendations from this working group. All right. So a lot to unpack, a lot still for this work group to, to deal with in a meeting and a half. We will obviously keep you updated. Hopefully when we come back and talk about this again, our prediction was correct and we'll have something more substantive to discuss. But for now, that's where it lies. 
That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. That way, all the episodes get sent directly to you. Give us a like. Tell your friends. It really helps to get our message out. For Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.